every parent, and perhaps grandparents are the worst, but every parent thinks their child is the best, right? The, the genius. We've all done it. Uh, you know, our, our children learned to speak earlier than anybody else's, and they were walking at two months. And uh, you, you all these, you, we, we love our children to death, and because we love our children so much, we, think, we all think they're geniuses, and that's probably a, a good thing because we, we have such love for our children uh, and, and who they are and what they will become and what they can do. And you know, some children are geniuses and do amazing things, but, uh, but we're not all the brilliant ones that we think we are, our children think we are. Today, as we come to this passage here, we're going to cover 30 years of Jesus' life in just a few short Verses or thereabouts, roughly. Uh, in all of the years that we have here, these early years, from the birth of Jesus till his time of the ministry, in all of those years, some roughly 30 years of life, we have only one event of his life recorded. So in 30 years, or roughly thereabouts, of his life, there is only one event recorded in his life of those years. That would seem to indicate that this one event, which is recorded, is significant. Much more significant than anything else that took place, but it was significant enough for Luke to say this needs to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the passage we're about to read here in a moment, we will see the very first recorded words of Jesus, as far as we have within Scripture. And as we've noted uh, on, on other occasions and in other places. Sometimes the, the silence of God's word speaks volumes. What it leaves out indicates to us some important things. And here, the silence that is left of the years of Jesus' childhood serves to emphasize the importance of this event. That there is nothing else said of Jesus' life makes this one rise to the top peak our attention that there is something very, very important here to understand. So let's read this morning our text, which is going to be from Luke chapter 2 and verse 39 through to the end of the chapter, which is verse 52. It says here, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, and of course that is, we've just seen the account of them in the uh, the temple. Um, they've had the, the, the various um, ceremonies they've gone through. They've met Simeon and Anna. Those are the things we've done in, in weeks past. So in that regard, so when they had performed all these, these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. Of course, he leaves out, and we'll, we'll, I'm taking this a while, isn't it? But he leaves out here what Matthew puts in, and that is that in between them leaving Bethlehem and going to Nazareth, they flee to Egypt for a time. That's not uh, important to Luke in terms of the narrative he is writing, so he leaves that out. So that's not here in Luke, but you will find that in Matthew. And to verse 40. So in Nazareth, and the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. He said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business or in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, let it encourage us. Teach us and guide us in godliness today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in this this passage, the only passage we have of Jesus' childhood in Scripture. And one of the things that it does show us, while it says the silence around it illustrates the importance of this passage, but one of the other things that it tells us here is that the Gospel writers weren't interested in curing our curiosity of the life of Jesus as a boy. That wasn't their intent. They, they didn't write these Gospels so that our curiosity would be cured about what Jesus was like in particular phase of his life. It reveals to us, and the reason it's, this is put in here and everything else, is because they were keeping our focus on the purpose of Jesus' coming. That's why this story, this event, is in here, and nothing else, because it helps us understand the purpose of Jesus' coming, not to satisfy our curiosity of what Jesus might have been like as a boy. Now, much of the passage which we're reading here and which we're going to look at, much of this passage is setting. It's giving us the the setting and the circumstances, and we'll gain some lessons and we'll gain some understanding from the setting around which this takes place. But the setting that this is put in, the the dressing around which this takes place, is, is here to emphasize and to reinforce the main point of the passage. Everything here from from the beginning to the end is all leading us to the climax of the passage, which is verse 49. That's the point. That's where everything here is driving us to, verse 49, when Jesus says, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, some translations say my father's house or my father's temple, um, some my father's business. The translation of the words is a little difficult. The meaning is the same no matter which way it goes, and we'll come to that meaning as we go through. But this is the the emphasis. This is the, the point. This is the climax of the passage, the words of Jesus here. The main point Luke has been making through the first two chapters of his gospel is this idea of who Jesus is and why he came. And so this is where this is going. So I want to think this morning just on a few thoughts as we work our way through these verses to see what it tells us about the the childhood of Jesus and what that means for us. Why is this included here in this passage? The first thing I want to talk about this morning as we look in the first few verses is that Jesus' growth as a child was normal. His growth as a child was normal. There are uh, a lot of ideas and things around about what Jesus was like as a child. And when, when the early church was gathering together 
what is now the canon of New Testament. There are a lot of books and a lot of letters and things that they could have included, but which they chose to leave out. Among some of those that they chose and wisely chose to leave out were some of the letters and things written in the second and third century about the birth of Jesus. Part of the reason that these were rejected uh, and, and they accepted the four that we have is that the four Gospels we have are completely silent on the childhood of Jesus with this exception, whereas some of the others were much more fanciful in the way they described it. You know, some of the, the, the legends and the things that grew up about Jesus in these, these books were uh, completely out of character. Of Jesus, one of those books which was rejected as being uh, the Word of God was one the Arabic or the Infancy Gospel of the Savior, um, which being from the Arabic region was titled the Arabic Infancy Gospel of the Savior. In it, one of the uh, the writers uh, quotes somebody who is said to have been near Jesus and and says uh, this. It says, "We find what follows in the book of Joseph, the high priest, who lived in the time of Christ. Some say that he is Caiaphas." He has said that Jesus spoke, and indeed, when he was lying in his cradle, said to Mary his mother, I am Jesus, the Son of God, the Logos, whom thou hast brought forth, as the angel Gabriel announced to thee, and my Father has sent me from the sal- for the salvation of the world. Now, if the whole process of Jesus' birth isn't uh, unusual enough, can you imagine Mary looking down into that manger and this little baby saying, I'm Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, that's going to be a freaky thing. But this is what they this little baby speaking to you. Other things say that as Jesus grew up, and uh, from, from this particular gospel here is as Jesus grew up, he would travel around with Joseph through the, the town and the city as Joseph, uh, being a carpenter, would fix things and make things and do things through the town for townspeople. This particular writer says Joseph wasn't a very good carpenter and he would often make things which weren't the right length or too long or too short or didn't fit where they were supposed to do and so Jesus would just make them fit and that was part of why he would travel around with with Jesus. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, one of the things was told, and this is one of those things which of course one of the reasons why they're left out is because they don't fit the character of Jesus. One day Jesus is uh, with the, the, the village children and, and he's sitting there and they're, they're playing and, and doing things and Jesus has gathered together a, a puddle or a stream of water and he's, he's put it all together. He's just gathered this water together into a, a pile. Another boy has come along with a stick and knocked down the pile of water which Jesus has made. Jesus was not happy about this and uh, was, was angry with him struck him down right there. The boy's parents weren't very happy, so they complained to Joseph. Joseph uh, then said to to, uh, Jesus, this is not a good thing you've done. Jesus gets angry with Joseph and says, I know you're telling me this because they got angry with you, uh, and he makes the parents die. Joseph then gets a little more angry at Jesus, grabs him by the ear, and Jesus essentially says, do not touch me. These are the stories that have been fancifully built around, and there's many, many more about what Jesus was like as a child. Things which we have no idea what they are, but, but they, we imagine what it might be like for God to be 
a child. These stories make the story that uh, Luke gives us here seem quite boring, but they have no foundation or clearly uncharacteristic of Jesus. They do what many of us do with Jesus and with God, and that is they imagine him to be just like us, only souped up, more powerful. The same basic characteristic we have, but with the power of God behind it. The truth of Jesus' childhood is really much more ordinary, much more normal as we see. Luke passes over 12 years here very quickly in the first couple of verses that we we read, saying they just pass and they go up into Galilee and he lives there in, in Galilee. What he does for us, though, as he describes this childhood of Jesus and what Jesus does is Luke is putting to description what Paul told us in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The simplicity of Luke's description here and of what Jesus was like as a child is simply that, showing us that Jesus was indeed like us as a human being. We have seen as we've gone through that the humanity of Jesus is very important. A very important part of what we believe and what God is doing through Jesus Christ. He needed to be fully human, not just God in a costume. And much of the fanciful things that have come up about Jesus before is essentially that. God in a costume. But what we're seeing here as we look through is that that is not the case. He is, in fact, fully and wholly God. As he grew as a child, Luke tells us here in these verses, in verse 40, that Jesus grew and learned. He grew as a child in the same way that every child grows. That every, we went through, the the early church father, Arrhenius, said uh, this as he speaks of Jesus. He therefore passed through every age. Becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants, a child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age, being at the same time made to them an example of piety, righteousness, and submission. A youth for youth, becoming an example to the youth, and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. That is, he lived every stage of life perfectly. So he lived each and every stage, the normal stages of life that we all go through as humans growing up. He lived those stages, but he did it without sin. By God's design, Jesus submitted his divine attributes in a way in which it veiled to be veiled in the flesh. So that means when he was in the manger, he didn't speak. He cried like every other baby cries. When he was learning to walk, he stumbled and fell as he learned to gain control of his muscles and his body. He learned to talk through the instruction of his parents and the normal way that we all learn to talk. He studied in school with his brothers and sisters, with his mother. He worked hard to memorize scriptures. He learned how to socially interact with other children. And all of these things that we do as we we grow up, this was his life. In this manner, his childhood was completely normal in every facet of the way, except that he did it perfectly. 
And that's what makes his childhood extraordinary. It's one thing to read all the stories of what Jesus was like and think, wow, imagine what it would be like to, to be a boy and have that kind of power. And the fanciful stories, and, and we think, well, that's extraordinary. But to me, the most extraordinary thing, even far more extraordinary than any of those things could possibly be, is the fact that a boy could live his life in every stage of that life perfectly, without sin. That in itself is extraordinary. But to our imaginative, sinful minds, it's boring. We want to see the tricks. Jesus' life is very ordinary in that regard. We don't need the fanciful stories. His life itself is quite amazing. Twice in this passage, Luke mentions that Jesus grew in favor with God at the beginning and at the end, describing his first 12 years and then the last uh, 20-odd years there, describes him as growing in favor with God. Now, this has nothing to do with the unconditional love that the father has for the son. For in fact, in places like Isaiah 42, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Or even at the baptism of Jesus, when he is baptized and the heavens open and the spirit descends like a dove and we hear from heaven the words, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These are clearly indications that the Son is indeed the object of God's eternal and unconditional love. So when it speaks here of him growing in the favor of God, we're not saying that he is growing in God's unconditional love. This has to do with God's conditional love. The conditional love that God has, he found increasing favor with God as he grew deeper and deeper in obedience. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, it says this, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned as he grew to obey through the things that he endured and the things that he went through. The same really is true for us. As people of God, we find ourselves in the great unconditional love of God, that he has saved us and he loves us then as his children, no matter what. But as we pursue him and as we grow deeper and deeper into the obedience and our own love of God, his favor on us grows as we grow in him. The first thing that we see of Jesus, that his growth is normal. But this is all just leading us to the point. The second thing we want to see is that his identity is divine. His identity is divine. And here we see him becoming a man. We're told in our passage here from verse 41 through that they're traveling to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. That's what the, the circumstances are, the setting of this. Now, it was required uh, that men were to go to Jerusalem, travel to Jerusalem for the three great feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, at the time, due to a lot of circumstances, distance, and family issues, not everyone, not all the men would go for all three feasts, but uh, more often than not, everyone would make the effort to go at least for Passover. That's why Jerusalem would swell to great uh, size during the time of Passover with so many there. 
Now, only the men were required to go as the representative heads of their family for the feasts and for the sacrifices at Passover. But one of the the leading rabbis at the time, Rabbi Hillel, encouraged women and children to come as well. And it seems that Joseph and Mary were following that advice in that every year, not only Joseph went, but so did Mary go to the feast of the Passover to celebrate, to worship, and to praise God in those, those times. They made this a regular event, it says. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So this was a normal part of their life. Attention, though, is brought this year as they go to Jesus. Now, in Jewish culture, at age 13, they became men under the law. We're perhaps familiar with the, the name or the, the term bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of commandment or son of the law. And so at 13, these boys would become men. That is, they would move from being subject from their parents to being coming responsible themselves to keep the law. Bar mitzvah, son of the law, son of the commandment. And this is what Jesus was about to do. Now, what had become customary, although at 13 you would go through that, that process and become a son of the commandment, what became custom was the year or two before, so at about 11 or 12, the, your parents would take them with you to the feast so that you could see what was going on, so that you could be immersed in the culture, so that you could start to get an idea of what the, uh, the implications were that you were taking on as a son of the commandment. So that you could go in with understanding of what was about to happen. So this is probably what is happening here with Jesus. He's 12 years old. Next year, through the custom, he is going to go through the the ceremonies and all to become a son of the covenant. So at 12, he's there to go in, to see, to experience, to, to watch the ceremonies go on, to gain a better understanding of what is going to be required of him as an adult, as a son of the law. You would see all these experiences. Now, can you imagine? For any 12-year-old boy, this is going to be an overwhelming experience, seeing all these things and then coming to grips with an understanding of that this is what is going to be responsible, uh, I'm going to be responsible for. But this will be an experience like no one else's for Jesus. So imagine going to a centuries-old ceremony which has been dedicated in all those years to you which has been pointing all of these years to you. As Jesus' human consciousness comes more and more to understand who he is and what he is to do, this would be an overwhelming experience. To begin to see, as we're clearly seeing, that his understanding, his human understanding of what he is about to do and what his mission is, is growing. His eyes are opening. This would be a magnificent and overwhelming event for a boy of 12. In that process, they stay there for the feast, and then we see that they leave. As the parents leave, uh, Jesus gets left behind. Now, it's easy to lose track of your children. Um, we, we've all probably done that. Uh, we have. You know, our first two, the girls, I don't think we ever lost them. We had one time, we were down at the park with, I think it was Esther's birthday. So there's, you know, 35-year-old girls running around screaming and I'm organizing games for them and 
Kirsten's sorting out things and grandparents were there and Hudson's running around between all of us. He's here playing the games one minute and he's over with mum helping with the table and then he's with grandparents and there. And so we're, we're just, he's, he's just everywhere. He was always just everywhere. Some 15 or 20 minutes later, this nice lady comes back with our boy on her hand. He'd gone to the other side of the playground to investigate what was on the other side. Um, fortunately, this nice lady had seen that he was with us and brought him back. So it's easy to lose track of your children, especially in big, uh, big events and things like what's going on here in Jerusalem. But with that said, we have no real reason to think that Joseph and Mary here are being irresponsible that they have irresponsibly lost their child, Jesus. There are a number of reasons why this could have happened. The normal way that people traveled in this uh, time was in big groups or caravans that would move through, and it, it would typically be the children would be at the front, um, and so would the, the women at the front because the children would go slower, so they would set the pace of how the journey went. The men often would wait a little while and they would do the things and talk in town and wait because they could travel faster and then they'd catch up and follow behind. So there'd be this kind of three groups uh, moving along. Now, a boy of Jesus' age at 12 could have been anywhere in this group. It would have been perfectly normal for him to be with the older boys and the men at the back. It would have also been perfectly normal for him to be with the children or with his mother towards the front. And so uh, he could have been with his mother, he could have been with the, the children, so it would have been normal for them to think, well, he's with his mother or he's with his father. He could have been anywhere in this great caravan as they traveled. And it would have been normal for that to happen. But also, given that Jesus, to this point as he'd grown up, had been the perfect boy, they would have had no reason to think that he would have been anywhere else than where they expected him to be. They had implicit trust in Jesus, knowing, well, if we're on our way, then he must be on our way with him. Why would he be anywhere else? So it's not until the end of that day, when they start to set up camp uh, there, that they realize that he's not with them. So they wait until the next day and they travel back. So we have two days and then the third day they look around Jerusalem and find him. So three days uh, they are separated here. They find him on the third day. They find him, of course, as we see in our text here, they find him in the temple. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him, verse 45, and verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. The custom after the feast that had grown up was typically that the theologians and the teachers would stay around for a few days. And they would gather in the, the rooms around the temple and they would have what they like to call theological disputations. Is they'd sit and they'd discuss and they'd argue about, about theology and the things of, of God and the things of the law. And it's possible, probable in fact, that in these gatherings here at the temple during this time are people like Rabbi Hillel, one of the, the leaders there, but also men like Gamaliel, who taught Paul, and even Nicodemus, uh, who we will see later come to Jesus by night. So it's probable in these discussions, this 12-year-old Jesus is first meeting these men whom he would have much more interaction with later in his life. 
In fact, here as they sit here and as they, they, they talk and as they listen, these leaders will be amazed by Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they agreed with everything he said. It just means they were amazed by what he, uh, what he said and what he uh, came out with. But in 20 years or thereabouts from this time, they will be seeking to kill him. This, you know, as we, we look here, many of the, the pictures we have of Jesus, many of the ideas we have of Jesus in this scene are of Jesus teaching the teachers. That's often how we think of it. Jesus goes because they were amazed by him. We get this sense that Jesus is there teaching the teachers what God thinks and what God is. But that's not the picture we're given here at all about what Jesus did in the temple. He wasn't there in these theological discussions teaching the rabbis. In fact, what it tells us here is that he was sitting in the midst of the teachers. That is what normally happened. The teachers would get in there. They would sit down to teach. The students would just gather all around him and sit all. So he's doing what all the other students are doing, gathering and sitting amongst the teachers. Sitting in the midst of the teachers. And what is he doing? Is he teaching? No, it says he is both listening to them and asking them questions. He's not a teacher here. See, many, uh, the pictures we have of Jesus teaching the teachers play into the same fantasies of the infant stories of Jesus. That he is this, this u- u- uniquely uh, different child which does amazing things and, and is completely God in these circumstances. But here, that is not Jesus. At 12, he's playing the role of a student. In fact, what Luke does here is he speaks of the, uh, the religious leaders that are there as teachers. This is the first and the, the last time that he will do that. For the rest of Jesus' life, he will never speak of the religious teachers, uh, the religious leaders as teachers, but he will speak of John the Baptist and Jesus as teachers. There will be a role reversal. But here, Jesus sits learning. He's taking part in the normal theological teaching of the day. He's listening. And as per the custom of the time, he's asking questions. And they're asking questions of him. They're discussing and they're learning. And clearly, the questions and the answers that he was giving weren't of a boyish, immature nature. He was asking penetrating questions. And the questions they asked of him, he was answering with maturity and dignity probing questions, perhaps. His answers were astute, perceptive, precise, as they were amazed. And perhaps he was finding things or understanding things in Scripture which they had not seen or understood before as he asked and answered these questions and listened to them teach. He sits here as a student. Luke consistently has shown Joseph and Mary's dedication to the law. We've seen that through this passage as we've gone through, and we've noted the importance of that. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. To this point, Jesus has been subjected to the law of God by his godly parents. We've seen it first at this circumcision and the sacrifices and the ceremonies. He has fulfilled the law there because his parents fulfilled the law. He's been subjected to the law by his parents. But this time, 
at this moment in Scripture, he is not being subjected to the law by his parents. He is willingly submitting and participating in the law personally. He is doing this of his own accord. We have a number of of young people in here this morning. Children, it's important, and, and young people, it's important that you be, and you have been, subjected to the law of God, to the teachings of God in your families. You're here, and that's part of it. Your parents have brought you to church. They've taught you the things of God as you have grown up, and you have been subjected to the ways of God in your life as is right of parents to do. But then there is a necessary time when each of you must start to participate in faith yourself. You must start to submit yourselves to faith, not be subjected to the faith. Your parents have subjected you to it, to this point, and Christianity to some point has been, to some degree, has been part of your life. But there comes a time when you must start taking responsibility for your own faith. For your own growth, your own belief, and your own devotion to God. And the time to start that, contrary to popular belief of, of our society and our culture, the time to start thinking about what you believe and participating in faith and devotion to God is not when you become legally an adult at 18 or or 21 when you can do more things and you're said to be an adult. It's not when you leave home. It's not when you start university. It's not when you get married. It's not when you have children and have your own family. By those times, you should already be well on your way to knowing your faith and understanding your faith. Seeking and asking questions. That doesn't mean that you're no longer subject to your parents. Jesus is 12 here, and it says he will still obey his parents along the way. But what it means is you need to start thinking about your belief. You need to start learning. You need to start asking questions. You need to start uh, understanding what it is that we're doing here, what this is about, whether you really believe it or not, and how deeply you will follow God. Ask the questions. Ask your parents. Ask me. I'm not going to grill you. I don't have an interrogation room or a torture room that I take you if you give the wrong answers. We're all here to help you grow and learn in your faith. Be deliberate about growing. In the process of this, we find the mystery of his identity. He reveals who he is. Now, Joseph and Mary, of course, are worried about him because they don't know where he's at. Now, Jesus isn't rebelling here. He's not uh, being irresponsible. It's an overwhelming experience. And as Jesus is beginning and his his understanding of who he is and what he is 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 growing from the human point uh, of of his life, he is is here and he's being overwhelmed. He's showing here perhaps childlike naivety. We've all been in those situations, haven't we, where we're completely overwhelmed and, and fully drawn into a, an event and we lose track of what we're doing or who we are. We're so involved in what's happening. And that's probably the state in which Jesus finds himself here as he's wondering about what's going on. But here's the moment the whole passage has been bringing us to, that he must be about his father's business in his father's house. It's clear that Jesus understands who he is. 
and what he has come to do. There's an interesting comparison here, and, and maybe it's meant this way, and maybe that's just the way it comes out. But when Mary finds him, she says, Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus' response to them is, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? This is perhaps that first moment, at least the first moment we know of, where the sword that Simeon speaks of starts to pierce the heart of Mary. The division starts to come. The pain of who Jesus is starts to come to fruition. Luke is using this event to reinforce the truth that Jesus is God. We've had the testimony of Mary and Joseph. We've had the testimony of Simeon. We've had the testimony of of Anna, all testifying to who Jesus is. And here we have the testimony of Jesus himself. He is very clearly calling himself the Son of God. It would be this statement, it would be this idea, which would cause the Jews the most angst in 20 years. It would be this idea, it would be this statement that he is the Son of God, which would move them to want to kill him. Here, Jesus is affirming what the angels declared of him in chapter 1, that he is the Son of God. This would be the first of many times that he would teach this. It would be this claim that would later cause the problems. Jesus, for in him dwells all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. He is holy man and holy God. And then there is their response. Jesus says this and he is telling them that that I am God, testifying of himself, of who he is. In verse 50 it says, but they did not understand the statement. Joseph and Mary didn't understand the statement. But they knew he was the Savior. They knew he was the Son of God. This response isn't unbelief. What it tells us is that there's more here than meets the eye. They knew who he was. They had all of the information behind them. What they didn't know was all of what he was to do. All of what it meant for Jesus to be the Son of God. There's still so much they don't understand. There is still such great mystery in who Jesus is. That statements like this can come out of nowhere and and bring us to, to not understand. This is what the ministry of Jesus would be about. Explaining this purpose. Explaining this statement that he is the son of God. And then lastly, this is the last thing I want to to share with you this this morning, is that his obedience is powerful. The last few verses of our text here from verse 50 says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. See, obedience is essential. His life of obedience is essential. So this, these couple of verses cover about 20 years of his life. From the time of 12 to about 32, 33, about 30 or so. So about 20 years of life are covered here. It appears that sometime in that period, Joseph dies and Jesus will take on the role as, as head of the family uh, in, in his family there. 
So this event at 12 and then the experiences which are to follow are all part of his education as a man. The life and the experiences as as human. He continues after this, we're told, in obedience to his parents. So despite this this unique moment, this moment where at 12 he's, he's beginning to see and beginning to put out there of who he is and what he's come to do, despite that and that recognition of what is there, he doesn't try to usurp the authority of his parents. He doesn't try to, to shortcut the natural progress of life. Say, well, I'm God and I know it now. You're at 13. I'm a son of the law. I'm going to take this all on. And you're just my human parents. And he doesn't try and shortcut any of that. He is going to live all of those years as he needs to live those years as man. And this is an important point. This is a very important point. We speak often of the power of the cross. We sing songs of it. We talk about the atoning work of God, how his death on the cross paid for our sins and his resurrection gives us new life. And and we talk about the gospel and what it is and, and what it means and how important that is to us. And we make much of the cross and we need to because that is at the center of who we are as the people of God. But here is the question. Is the death, is his death on the cross enough to pay for sin and satisfy God? Is his death alone enough to pay for sin and satisfy God? The answer to that question is yes, only as the completion of a perfectly lived life. Only as the climax of a life that was lived completely sinless can his death be what it needs to be. If all that was needed was for the death of Jesus for sin, then he could have just come, died, buried, rose again and be done with it, and it would have been done. Yet he came and he lived a whole life. He lived a whole life here on earth. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So Adam... Sins once, and all humanity is plunged into sin and wickedness. We are all brought into condemnation because of one sin, which taints and destroys every part of our life. The second part of verse 19 says, So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It took one act of disobedience to bring condemnation. It would take a whole life of obedience to bring freedom. Freedom from sin. Paul said it to the the Philippians in this manner. Chapter 8 chapter 2 and verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. His death was the ultimate completion of a life of obedience. It is absolutely essential. Jesus lived a perfect life. If he did not, his death is meaningless. He lived his life 
in perfection. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll read these as, as the, the last verses before we bring our thoughts to a conclusion this morning. But in Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 10 here firstly, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Further down now in verse 14. Inasmuch then... As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things... He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are tempted. It is important that he lived a perfect life. Life. He continued to grow in his perfection. One of the last things we see from our text here in Luke is that, again, we're told that Mary ponders these things in her heart. What do you do when you don't understand something? That's Mary's problem here. Jesus has said something and, and she doesn't understand it. What does she do? Does she ignore it? Does she reject it? Does she put it off? No, she takes it in and she ponders it. So what do you do when you come to Scripture and you don't understand something or it doesn't make sense? What do you do with it? Do you ignore it? Don't read it? Put it aside? Reject it, perhaps, like many? The right response is to take it in deeply. Think on it. Meditate on it. Pray over it. Mary probably wouldn't understand this statement for another 20 years. Sometimes it takes time for these things to become clear. Take in God's word deeply. This is a simple story of a 12-year-old boy. It's a story that has powerful implications. Jesus wasn't a precocious, annoying, vindictive little brat. Now, he lived each and every stage of life as we do. He knows your experience. And that doesn't matter what age you're at, 10, 11, 13, 15, 20, 25, 75, 90. He knows your experience. He knows what it is like to live this life and to live it perfectly. He lived through it perfectly. He lived a life that is perfect because you can't. By believing in Jesus, God credits Christ's complete obedience and righteousness to your account. It's by believing in Jesus, it's not just a matter of him washing away your sins. It's a matter of God crediting to your life the perfection of Jesus. Because you can't. You can't do that. So like Mary, take this in. 
ponder it. Meditate on its riches. The glory that Jesus Christ lived perfectly for you, what you cannot live. Start taking responsibility for your own faith. Digging in deeply and seeking answers to the questions, the faith that you have. And if you aren't a believer this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus lived a perfect life for you. Without sin, completely and totally pure. He died on the cross to pay for your sin. And he rose again for your eternal life. Believe him today. God will count you as righteous. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what what an amazing, amazing story we have here of your son. So simple, yet so profound. Truths in there which pierce to the very heart of who we are as the people of God because of who you are as the Son of God. Lord, let us draw these in deeply. Learn to love them, more fully understand them, that we might bring glory to you as we fall more or pursue more deeply you in the obedience of our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.